0: Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Go and have a seat. And let me invite you to get your Bibles out and turn to Hebrews 13, uh, which is the last chapter uh, in the book of Hebrews. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. We're getting close. Uh, to finishing as you're turning to that final chapter in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the reality is that for the last number of months, uh, as we have worked through uh, the book of Hebrews, there have been a number of these robust theological truths <clears throat> that have been displayed uh, throughout the book. Uh, and yet these theological truths are uh, really serve to form the framework of applied living. And so while the author went to to great effort and detail to lay out a number of these truths in in the first two-thirds of the book, in this final portion of the book, he's now giving us uh, lots of application. And so the text that we come to this morning is going to deal very plainly, uh, very concretely with how we live. This question of how then shall we live? And it's coming out of the number of theological truths that we've seen uh, over the, the the first handful of chapters, a number of chapters in the book of Hebrews. So here's where God's Word is going to lead us this morning. It's this idea right here. God's call to continue in love compels us to serve others and pursue holiness. Let me say that again, that God's call to continue in love compels us to serve others and pursue holiness holiness. We're looking at Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. I'm going to read uh, the entirety of that passage. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's Word. Loved ones, this is God's Word to us. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Loved ones, this is God's word, and it will stand for all of time, amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you be seated and join me as we pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful for your eternal and enduring Word. God, we're thankful for how your Word is going to do your work. Uh, here today, this morning. God, we pray that we would be submitted to your Word. God, that we would hear from your Word, that uh, you would have the freedom uh, by and through your Spirit to, to, to encourage and edify and challenge and convict and remind and whatever it is that we need, God, that you would accomplish today. That our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened, and our hearts would be opened to the fullness and the truth of your Word. And God, not only for us, Uh, As always, we want to pray for another church in the area, and this morning praying for Mosaic Church and for Pastor Adam Viramontis, and God, we're praying for that body of believers that you'd be working and moving in them, Uh, God, accomplishing your good purposes in that church in the same way that we desire that you'd be doing that for us. So God, come and have your way now. Uh, Come and open our eyes to see the fullness of what you have for us in your Word, and we pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said. Amen. All right, title of the message this morning is Continuing in Love. Continuing in Love. And so there's this exhortation that's given to us uh, right out of the gate, and then we're going to see specific ways uh, by which you and I continue in love. So let's begin with this idea. Look at verse 1. Here's what he says. He says, "...let brotherly love continue." Uh, and so what we see first of all is that we continue in brotherly love. Now now the word here right brotherly love that, that that's the Greek word Philadelphia and when we think of Philadelphia what do we think of? We think of the city of Philadelphia, which ironically uh, does not evoke uh, any sentiment whatsoever of a city of brotherly love. In fact, if anything, it probably evokes the opposite. Uh, But he's not talking about a city in America. He's talking about an action and a mindset that should be true of of the followers of Jesus. And so notice a couple of things about this statement. First of all, notice that we are commanded to continue in love. This isn't optional, this isn't if you feel like it. He's commanding us that we're to do this. And, and, and if you think about that, right, we're commanded to continue in brotherly love towards one another. Inevitably, what we start thinking about is, does that apply to everybody? Right? Because, because there are some people, let's just be honest, there are some people that are a little harder to love. A little extra grace is required. A little more forbearance is needed. And yet church you listen we got to hear the exhortation but then be encouraged be encouraged by the fact that God is the one who's going to enable you and I to do this Right? We, we don't muster up some kind of sentiment like, okay, well, now I'm going to try to love this difficult person. God is the one who enables us to, to, to continue in brotherly love, even towards people who are difficult or hard to love. In fact, here, I, I want you, this is maybe a dangerous I- illustration here. I want you to think of someone in your life that's difficult to love. And if you're saying, can I choose more than one? No, you cannot. Okay. All right. But think of someone who's difficult to love. And, and think about, right, you start thinking about some of the ways that they're frustrating, some of the ways they're kind of prickly, some of the ways they get on your nerves. And as you're thinking about them, consider this, <clears throat> that our holy, perfect, righteous God continues in love for us in spite of our rebellion and our obstinacy toward Him. We have been far more egregious, far more defiant toward God than that person has ever been towards you. And yet God continues in his love towards us which means you and I can continue in our love towards that difficult person. In fact, we can be led by the Lord in this, and we can continue in brotherly love because God has modeled for us and gone before us on this. So we're commanded to continue in love. But this statement also is actually quite informative, right? Notice also that we're informed of how we continue in love. Uh, There's some insight uh, in this simple statement. First of all, make note of this, that we continue in love because we're family, Right? He, he doesn't say, let love continue. He says, let what? Brotherly love continue. Th- th- there's a familial love that the author has in view. And part of what he's doing, he's reminding his readers that the gospel makes us family. That we can continue in this love because we're family. Right? It's not just random people. Uh, adoption makes us brothers and sisters. Right? Not only are you and I sons and daughters of God, we're also brothers and sisters of one another. And that's part of what he's, he, he's getting at here. So people can come and go, but family we're stuck with for Forever. Right, I mean, we kind of joke a little bit about that. I'm joking a little bit, a little tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is, it's it's actually a a, a great and rich truth because there's this bond in family that that you just don't find anywhere else. And so, so th- think of your own biological family for a moment. And maybe that was one of the people that was difficult to love a moment ago. Uh, and, and so maybe this illustration won't land the way that it's supposed to. But as you think about siblings or parents or children, aunts, uncles, whatever it is, in a healthy family, you know them and they know you and you know their habits and their gifts and their weaknesses. And family, uh, what, what is it about family that they can so easily frustrate us? And yet, what is it about family that, that they're so persistent in their love and their forbearance with us, right? And they protect us and they watch over us and there's this closeness and this bondedness and this, uh, this care and this protection. When I think about this, I, I, I mean, I think of a number of things. One of the things I was thinking about when I, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up on this street and there was just a ton of kids on Cooper Drive. I mean, just kids, it felt like of all ages, but there was this, this one particular group of kids, large group of kids, and I, I was the youngest of, of this large group of kids. And we would do a lot of things together, play different sports and games and whatnot. So one time we're at the park and we're playing football. And I was, I was a bigger kid for my age, but I was still the youngest kid out there. And so the, this one older kid, for whatever reason, was kind of uh, picking on me a little bit that day. And he was being rough with me. And so after one play, he had tackled me. And, and he's kind of not letting me get up off from the ground a little bit. And so he stands up and my sister who was not to be trifled with, all right? Uh, My sister grabbed this kid by the shoulders and threw him down on the ground. And then here's what she said. She said, don't mess with my brother because that's what family does, right? They look out for each other. They protect each other. And I stood up and I said, yeah! And then my sister threw me on the ground (laughs) because that's also what family does, right? They're kind of annoying and whatnot. But this point being, there's this protection, this care, this bond that exists. And even Jesus, God, remember in Mark 3, Jesus' mother and his brothers show up and they're like, hey Jesus, your, your, your mother's here and your brothers are here. And he asks this really odd question. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he says, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God. See, I think the point that Jesus is making, I think the point that Hebrews 13 is making is that to be spiritually related is more important than to be biologically related. See, we can continue in love because we're family, not just biological family, but because we're spiritual family. Notice also this that we continue in love because we're disciples. Right? This is what is characteristic of those who are in Jesus. Right? Those who are in Jesus are disciples, that, that, that we love one another. And this is not the first place in the Bible that we've seen this. In fact, we've seen this all over the place in the scriptures before this. Jesus says in John 13, By this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? The universal mark of belonging to the family of God is a love that we share for one another. And so here's the question that you've got to ask yourself. Are you continuing in love, right? Are you loving fellow believers as family? Or maybe, maybe, is there anyone in your life that you're trying to exempt yourself from having to love? Let brotherly love continue. And then the author moves into this second section here in verse two and three. And what we see here is is that we are to remember to serve others, And so he's going to start giving some very clear examples of what continuing in brotherly love looks like. In fact, he gives two examples that have to do with others here in verse 2 and 3. One is to show hospitality, and the other is to remember those in prison. And so let's just walk through each of those here uh, for a few moments. He starts by saying this in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. All right, so let's just make sure we have some understanding on some of the things that the author is getting at here. First of all, hospitality. How should we understand hospitality? Hospitality is probably best understood as looking out for the needs of others by welcoming them into your home. That's the most generic blanket way that we could capture this. And so then you're like, well, what does this have to do with strangers? Who's he talking about? That's likely a reference to fellow Christians who would have been traveling in that day and age, and they were traveling for gospel purposes. See, here's what you have to understand traveling in that day and age was a very dangerous endeavor. Uh, there are a number of people who, 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 would, who would waylay travelers, like almost like pirates, uh, in the hillside, and a lot of theft, a lot of assault uh, that was very common as you traveled further when you would get to different places. Uh, there weren't exactly a lot of places uh, for people to stay, not a lot of places of lodging. And so it was common for believers at that time who you would have a perfect stranger come into your home and you would welcome them into your home simply because of the bonds that existed in the gospel. And, and you see this, thing about people in the Bible, right? Jesus was constantly moving from community to community. Paul was constantly going from one location to to another, right? There's a biblical precedent to this. And what hospitality did was it met the needs of believers. It gave them food. It gave them lodging. It gave them safety. It gave them welcome. It gave them fellowship. And again, it's, it's even kind of amplifying that sense of family that we were talking about just a moment ago. In fact, Becky, Becky and I have had this experience when we were living in, in Austria. Uh, one day, we're, we're at home in our apartment I get a, the phone rings, answer it, and it's a missionary friend of ours from uh, back in the States, a guy named Ed Young. And Ed says, hey, I'm stranded here in Vienna. Uh, that time he was doing a lot of missionary work in the Middle East, flying through Vienna. He's like, I'm stranded here with a few other people. Uh, is there a way that we could stay with you? And I'm like, well, how many other people do you got? He's like, well, there's two other people with me. Uh, we didn't have that big of an apartment. We're like, oh, we can make that work. And so I meet him at this train station in the middle of the city, come to find out that the two other people who were traveling with them, he met in line uh, as he was trying to figure out his travel plans. So like I show up and there's Ed, who's probably 60 at the time, this enormous British guy, who's probably like 6'6", and then this tiny Egyptian woman, and I was like, "Well, this ought to be an interesting evening, <laughs> right? You know, like." But we just just welcomed them in and made it work. And and in that instance, really, Ed was volunteering, Becky and I, uh, to demonstrate hospitality to some of those uh, those other people. But it's that whole idea of here's people who have a need, and we're going to welcome them into our home. And so, how do we think about that today? Because that, that, that's not that's not the primary way that this shows up for you and I. So, how, how do we think about this today? Well. well First of all, hospitality is not entertaining. Hospitality is about meeting a need. And that need often comes, hear me very carefully when I say this, that need often comes in the form of service that may very well likely not be reciprocated or repaid. See, a lot of times when we invite people to our house, it's like, well, okay, when do I get my invite back? That's not hospitality. There's no quid pro quo in this. There's no you do this for me, I'll do this for you. No, no. Hospitality is I invite you in and I expect nothing in return. It's entirely one-sided. Which, by the way, loved ones, the gospel is entirely one-sided, isn't it? See, see, this is actually what Jesus does for us. Jesus invites us into his home. Jesus invites us into his family. Jesus invites us to his table. And there's no sense of repayment or reciprocation that's ever uh, in view or expected, right? Hospitality has the gospel at its roots. And so what God's Word is challenging us to is we got to be willing to open up our homes, got to be willing to open up our tables, open up our living rooms to advance gospel purposes. And so to be hospitable to fellow believers means we're going to bring them in to encourage them, to to edify them, uh, to remind them, to have fellowship with them. It's an intentional form of service, Right, we're, we're focused on service. And to be hospitable towards non-believers is to invite people into your home, to share the gospel with them, to model the gospel uh, to them, to generously give and extend to them in a manner and a way that Jesus has given and extended to us. As so a church, we've we got to get people in our home, we've got to get people at our tables, and we've got to do it with people who can't or, or may not be able to reciprocate back to us. That's the charge And as we're talking about hospitality, just make note of this. I would argue that hospitality is probably the most overlooked and undervalued means of sharing the gospel. Because in today's day and age, listen, if you went to work and you said, hey, how many of you want to come to church with me? Uh, How many of you want to come to this outreach event with me? Uh, How many of you want to come and sit at my dinner table? That's, That's what people will do. Right? So, so it's, this, it's this wildly overlooked and undervalued means of being able to share the gospel. In fact, if you struggle to share the gospel, if you're fearful of sharing the gospel, if you have hesitation around sharing the gospel, hospitality should be your go-to because the, because the gospel opportunities are so natural and normal. So I, I'm going to give a couple of you a resource that hopefully is helpful in this. This is a book. It's called A Meal with Jesus. It's by a guy named Tim Chester. Tim Chester is one of my all-time favorite authors. This guy is nails. Um, so first two, who, who will actually read this book and employ it? Okay, Mary, I saw your hand. Uh, I'm sorry on the other side of the room. Um, so, so check it out, check it out. Here's the deal. You get the books, you have to read it, and then you got to give to someone else. You don't get to keep it, you got to pass it along, but you got to read it, you've got to employ it, and then you got to pass it along. If you didn't get a book, they're like 10, 12 bucks, something like that on Amazon, Um, and if you want to, you can come and borrow mine, or you can come back for second service. No, it's coming, and there's two more to give away, all right? Um, But uh, when you consider hospitality, just ask yourself, who's been in your home recently? Who sat at your table? Who sat in your living room? Who who, who, who have you sat around and sought to encourage and to help and to edify and to build up? Who's been in your home and you're sharing the gospel with them, trying to point them towards Jesus? And if you're saying, Mike, man, we'd love to do that. Our, Our space just isn't conducive. Nonsense. Get creative. Becky and I hosted a meal in our bedroom in Vienna because that was the biggest room in our apartment. So we just pulled everything out. Because that's where we could seat the most people. Now, I wouldn't want to do it all the time. But you, you can do that. Or you're like, hey, this is probably a more realistic thing. Mike, we've got limited funds. Well, again, you're not entertaining you're hosting. Ask people to contribute to the meal. Drink coffee or tea or something like that that's inexpensive. There's a number of ways uh, around this. And if you're saying, you know, Mike, when I think about I really haven't had anyone in my home. I haven't been doing any of this. Then the question you have to ask yourself is, what strategy am I going to employ to start inviting people into my home and into my life? Right? The charge is that we would show hospitality. Now, one other thing, because there's no way you're going to let me get away skipping over this, is what's going on with entertaining angels unawares. Okay. <clears throat> um, let me just ask you a question. Can you think of a story in the Bible where somebody entertained angels and they didn't know that they were entertaining angels with hospitality? Yeah, Abraham, right? In fact, there's, there's a handful of examples, but the most notable one is Abraham in Genesis 18. See, I, th- I think what the author is doing is he's, he's tipping back to Abraham. So here's what happened in Genesis 18. Three guys show up, and Abraham's like, come on in. And, and they begin, to, he's like, Sarah, we've got to start making something. And so they make a meal. Actually, what, what, what most people believe, two of them are angels. And the third one is what most people believe is the pre-incarnate Christ. And so, so what the author of Hebrews is saying, he's like, hey, listen, even our forefather Abraham, he, he actually entertained angels with simple hospitality. I think the point is this, that simple, ordinary hospitality, even that plays a vital role in advancing the kingdom of God. And so, church, you worry. You and I need to worry about showing hospitality. You let God worry about the advancement of the gospel in that. But what you need to know is that oftentimes there are, there's more that's going on that meets your eye and my eye in that moment. We show hospitality. Secondly, look at verse 3. He says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. That we remember those in prison. This is part of our service to others. We remember those in prison. Now again, contextually, let's understand what this meant. Because in that day and age, it wasn't just that Christians were getting thrown in jail because they were breaking the law. In fact, a number of Christians were getting thrown in jail simply for being Christians. And there's ample evidence all over the place of, 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 of this very fact happening. In fact, here there's a letter from a governor, a guy named Pliny the Younger, and you can go find this just about anywhere, who writes to the Emperor Trajan about coercing Christians to recant of their faith, and if they won't do it, that he will throw them in prison and maybe even torture them. And all of it is an attempt to get uh, people back into the pagan temples of Rome. And so this was the environment, and this was the atmosphere that Hebrews was, was written in. And so it's easy to understand why we should be remembering those in prison. Right, the point is, uh, and this is not to say that we don't care for those who are in prison today or those who have committed crimes. There's legitimate ministry there. There's incredibly legitimate ministry there. But the, the, the undergirding principle here in Hebrews 13 is to care for those who are innocent yet are suffering unjustly as a result of their faith. He says, remember those who are in prison, later those who are mistreated. He's talking about there's this injustice that's going on, and we want to care for them. And what's interesting about verse 2 and 3, right, in two different places, he's, he's putting it back in our minds. He's saying, don't neglect this and remember this. And I think what the author is trying to tap into is this, that we're prone to neglect and we're prone to forget others because we're so wrapped up in ourselves. Right, we we just may forget. Right here's someone who's thrown in prison, out of sight, out of mind. Oh, kind of forgot about them. Or or maybe we even kind of want to forget. Right, there are some injustices that are just so gritty, so so despicable. It's like, man, I I don't know that I necessarily want to be thinking about that. And yet, the calling is for us to not ignore, not to be fail, or not to fail to be troubled by their plight. And and any temptation to try to distance ourselves from them, the author doesn't let us go there because notice how he connects us to them. He reminds us that we're with them. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. He's saying I want you to remember them as if you're with them. And those who are mistreated since you're also in the body. He's saying you're part of them. This is a singular body. A part of the body can't hurt and the rest of the body be ignorant of that. Like, like we're, we're all aware of that. This is what Paul says in First Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all members suffer. We suffer together. And so think about, think about like a, a physical injury to your body. Let's say you had something happen with your knee because <clears throat> that never happens right? All of our knees work perfectly. But let's just say, for example, one, one of you had some kind of issue with your knee. Now, now that's going to that's gonna affect your ability even to walk, much less a number of other things. But at the very least, walking all of a sudden becomes a little bit compromised. Now, ju- just think about just even the rest of your leg, much less the rest of your body, right? Your, your, your thighs don't necessarily hurt. Your shin doesn't hurt. Your ankle doesn't hurt, right? The, much less the rest of your body. But what's going to happen? Your body is going to begin to compensate. Other parts of the body are going to begin to compensate to, and try to counteract some of that pain. And it's the same principle with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If they're suffering, so are we. And we want to act to try to counteract or to compensate for some of that pain. And here's one of the ways that I see this. Often, the the, the nature of my role is that often I will hear from, from you all about different members of your family who are struggling, maybe they're struggling in their health, maybe they're struggling in their faith, maybe they're a particularly difficult situation, whatever it is. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. But a lot of times, the case is that these people live in entirely different parts of the country, or even different parts of the world. And yet, why do you care for them? You care for them because they're your family. So you suffer with them, even though you, there's no geographical proximity to them. And it should be the same concern that we would have with our spiritual family. And So just ask yourself, do you have eyes toward those who are suffering and afflicted? Are you willing to be inconvenienced in order to care for them? And are you willing to draw near to serve them? And so part of us continuing in love is that we remember to serve others. We do that by showing hospitality and we remember those in prison. And then here's the final item, because in verses 4 through 6, the author shifts, and he shifts away from this kind of external others focus to an internal personal focus. Uh, And and what he's uh, he's encouraging us toward is that we would guard our holiness, that we would guard our holiness. And he's going to use two items that none of us have ever struggled whatsoever with in any capacity, just sex and money. We've never argued about that, we've never struggled with that, so this should just be a breeze. No, no, put your seatbelts on. We're all about to get popped in the face. Okay, we guard our holiness. Here's the first thing. Look at verse four. It's that we honor marriage. He says this let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We honor marriage. I think it's worth stating that our day is not the only day throughout all of human history uh, where marriage has been devalued and sex has been distorted or perverted. In fact, you could argue that every generation throughout all of human history that this has been the case. Uh, So when Becky and I were living overseas, uh, we had the opportunity to go down to Italy. And one of the things we did, we went to Pompeii, right? Pompeii is this city that was uh, destroyed or or really uh, covered by uh, the the volcano Mount Vesuvius when it erupted. And so we're walking around the ruins. It, it, It helped to preserve of a lot of of that community. So we're walking around the ruins. And I remember walking into this one place and no joke, like I look up on the walls and some of the art has still been preserved and and it is explicitly pornographic what's on the walls. And I'm like, whoa, walk out of there. And I'm kind of looking at my map. I'm thinking that had to be like a brothel. I don't remember what it was. It was like the library or a place of business or something like that. The point being, right, that the decor screamed, of this sexual perversion, and it speaks to this issue throughout history, right? So we're, we're, we're not alone in this. In fact, the author of Hebrews is dealing with this because it's an issue in his day as well, and in an odd way, I find it wildly discouraging that we're not alone in this. Like, could you imagine opening the Bible, and, there, and, and all the letters in the New Testament are like, I'm so thankful that you have no issues whatsoever with any sexual perversion ever, You'd be like, what is wrong with us? right? And yet we're just part of of the the, the way that this has been distorted under the curse. And so why? Why do we honor marriage? Why is this so important? What's What's the big deal in this? See, marriage is such a big deal because of what marriage reflects and represents. Marriage is a depiction of the gospel. Marriage reflects the relationship that is meant to exist between Christ and the church, right? Ephesians 5 uh, depicts this portrait that exists between a husband and a wife, and that is, is meant to be a testimony and a witness to the world of what, of what the church, uh, the relationship between Christ and the church and so, so why then would marriage be assaulted? Why would marriage uh, come under attack? Because if it's undermined, it corrodes the very depiction of the relationship that Christ desires to have with the church. And you'd be crazy to think that the enemy wouldn't love to undermine and compromise that depiction. In fact, to dishonor marriage is to dishonor God's portrait of redemption. And so we're to honor marriage How do we do that? Well, look at the text. He he gives us a few things here in verse 4. First of all, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. That marriage is to be honored by all. So this isn't just for married people to hold this up. This is for all of us to uphold this, whether married, single, widowed, or whatever the case, that we, we all are to honor marriage. Is marriage honored in our society today? Is it valued in our society? Man, I mean, In most circles, marriage is viewed very negatively, right? Marriage is seen as this impediment to my self-actualization, right? This is what prevents. It's the shackles uh, that that prevents my freedom. It's the hurdle to my happiness. Now, just because marriage being good is not the prominent view doesn't mean that it's not right or biblical, Right? And so biblical perspective. When we think about marriage being held by, uh, or marriage being honored by, all, let's have biblical perspective on this. Two things I want us uh, to just note biblically on this. First of all, that God created marriage. God created this. Right? In a few weeks, getting to January, we're going to be into, uh, into Genesis, and we're going to see this in spades. But God created marriage. Here's my question. What is there that God has created that is not good? Nothing, right? In fact, when you get into Genesis 1, God saw what he made and it was good. God saw what he made, it was good. Like nowhere are you gonna be like, God saw what he made and it was okay. No, everything that God made is good. And marriage is not the exception to that. Marriage is good because God says it's good and God created it to be good. The fact that our society doesn't value and uphold marriage as good just speaks to the fact that they've lost their mind because everyone will always lose their mind when they reject what God has said. Marriage is good because God created it and it's to be honored because God created it. But also what we see in the Scriptures and probably a lot of you have seen this in your own life as well, is that God uses marriage. There's a few ways that we see God using marriage. First of all, it's a depiction and a revelation of the gospel. That's the primary function of marriage. But there, there, there's another a host of other functions that, that, that are tied to this, just in a more pragmatic sense. You know, you, you know what marriage does for most of us? Is it sanctifies us. Marriage, for many of you, is the, is the very crucible of your sanctification in your life. Right? It's the primary source of sanctification because marriage exposes just how sinful we are and just how selfish we are. It teaches us how to truly love our spouse. Not just this sappy, sentimental, worldly love, but like biblical love. Marriage teaches us how to serve. Marriage uh, teaches us how to be humble. And I think another use of marriage, or one of the ways that God uses this marriage, is it gives us a picture of the forbearance of Jesus because you know who married the worst spouse ever? Jesus did. And if you're thinking I did, shame on you, (laughs) because you're actually part of the worst spouse. You're part of the problem, not part of the solution. Jesus married the worst spouse ever. No one has been less faithful, more exploitive, less available, or more selfish or wicked than the church, which we're a part of. And yet Jesus continues to perfectly and selflessly love his bride. And see, marriage reflects all these truths. So we want to honor marriage. We want to hold up marriage. So how do we do this? Let me just give you a couple of really practical things real quick. First of all, that we model the value of marriage. That we model the value of marriage. What, what, What do you mean by that, Mike? I mean this, that you speak honorably about your spouse. To them... And when you're talking to other people. You're talking to someone else. If you, if you don't want to speak honorably about your spouse, just don't talk about your spouse. That is part of how we, how we value marriage. We're speaking honorably about our spouse. Could you imagine if I stood up here on a Sunday morning, I'm like, let me tell you three terrible things about Becky. You guys wouldn't, you wouldn't tolerate that. And I probably wouldn't be alive to preach the following Sunday either, right? <laughs> if that was the case. But we want to speak honorably about our spouses, and we want to place great value on the marriage relationship, right? That, 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 that your spouse is the most important relationship, human relationship that you, that, that you have. And, and there, there's this weird thing. I mean, I don't know what this is weird thing where people are like, oh, that's my spouse. But this is my best friend. That's nonsense. That's an unbiblical marriage. Your spouse is supposed to be your best friend. And this weird thing where people are like, oh, no, I want them to like me more than, than my spouse. You better knock that off. You gotta give priority to the marriage. I love my wife more than I love any other human that exists. And, right, for my kids, do I, do I tell you guys that I love your mom more than I love you? Yeah. <laughs> you know why? I made a covenant with my wife, and I didn't make a covenant with my kids. And God willing, listen to me, God willing, my kids will grow up, move out, praise God. No, I'm just kidding. They'll move out, and listen they're going to make a covenant with someone else. And so how nonsensical would it be for, for Becky and I to expect that they're going to have an allegiance to us above their spouse. That, that, that's crazy talking. Now y'all need to make grandkids. Okay, that's a different thing. But the covenant is to someone else. This is part of how we model the value of marriage. Further, we respect and encourage godly marriage that when we see it done well, that we're complementing it, that we're holding that up as the example, that we, we, we amplify that, we point to that. We want to talk about and state things that, that elevate marriage, not things that undermine marriage. Right? We honor marriage, and that means that marriage is to be honored by all. But secondly, look at this as well, that purity is to be pursued by all. Right? He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, And the reason that it's not to be defiled is because of a judgment that's going to come on the sexual immoral and the adulterous. But let's deal with this undefiled marriage bed here for just a moment. That the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Now, listen, listen, listen. God calls his people to a sexual ethic that will largely be mocked and misunderstood. Did you hear that? Church, God is calling you to a sexual ethic that will largely be mocked and misunderstood. So let's just understand what we're getting into. Let's just understand what's in front of us and what's at play here. But as you're thinking about that, don't you dare think that God is somehow prudish or that God's opposed to sex or that God thinks that sex is gross or icky. God created it. God invented it. Sex does not belong to the world. Sex does not belong to humanity. It belongs to God. It's His he created it, he developed it, and it's a beautiful, sacred, good gift. Listen, when it's used appropriately, which by the way is true of any gift that we're given. So kind of a crazy thing this week, I was given two gifts. Actually, not really. I'm just making this up, but just for the sake of the illustration, I was given two gifts. I was given a fine bottle of wine and a jar of bleach. And I got to tell you, that bottle of wine did a great job cleaning the kitchen drain and that bleach tasted wonderful. You'd be like, bro, you completely misused the gifts. And not only did you misuse the gifts, but now they're probably a little bit destructive. Right? You start drinking bleach, things are going to go poorly for you. The same is true with sex. When you misuse the gift, it's not beautiful and glorious. It's destructive And dangerous. And so we're to be distinct. We're to pursue purity. The biblical sexual ethic is going to be distinct from society. Did you know that this is stunning to me? The Corinthian church, that there has never been a a more screwed up group of people documented in in all of Christendom. And yet that church, they finally figured it out. And do you know what they were referred to by the people in Corinth? They were referred to as haters of mankind. And it had to do with their sexual ethic. Everyone's like, you hate humanity because you have this biblical sexual ethic. And so we want to preserve the purity of the marriage. bed. we want to take this command seriously because we live in a day and age where it's just being thrown out. And so you just, just ask yourself, here's, here's some questions you got to wrestle through whether or not purity is being pursued here. What do you look at? What do you read? And what do you think about? And then ask yourself this question, does it promote purity or is it promoting defilement? How closely do you guard what you intake with your eyes and your ears and your mind? I'm not talking about pornography, that's at the other end of the continuum. I'm talking about all this stuff over here in the gray area. And whether that we're guarding ourselves from defilement or actually participating and sharing in that. What do you talk about? Is there a crudeness and a crashness to your speech and to your conversations? Right? Is your speech the filthy, crude, coarse jesting that Ephesians 5 says shouldn't even be named among us? Or is it one that speaks to the purity and the beauty of God's gift? What are we doing with our bodies? Is there caution and respect for members of the opposite sex? Or am I going to get what I can when I can? See, Christian morality in the ancient world was always a source of wonder because it was so radically distinct from everyone else around them. But it also became a source of great gospel opportunity. And loved ones, the same should be true for us as well. Purity is to be pursued. One quick note here. End of verse 4, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Um, I, I'm not going to say much about that. You can go read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 if you want. Let me just say this. A decision to pursue sex of any sort outside of God's design is the decision to ignore God's word. And as always, ignoring God's word brings about God's judgment. You can pursue purity. You can pursue judgment. Those are the pathways. God help us that we would be people who pursue purity. All right, let's move on to the second one. And you're like, whew, we're through that that was rough. It gets easier. No, it doesn't. Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Some of you are like, let's just talk. Let's go back. I'll take my beating in sex. I'm like, let's just go back to the other one. Keep your life free from the love of money. Now, to be clear, we're not told to avoid money. We're told to avoid the love of money because money money is neutral. It's what you and I do with money that determines whether or not it's righteous or unrighteous. And that's true for a number of things, right? Fire is neutral. Fire can be good if it keeps you warm. Fire is bad if it burns your house to the ground. A knife is neutral. It's good if you use it to slice meat to eat. It's bad if you use it to inflict uh, harm or injury to someone else. Right, so money is neutral. It's what we do with it that determines whether or not it's righteous or unrighteous. And the love of money is really an indictment that we don't believe or we, that, that we, we, we don't believe that Jesus is adequate in every capacity of our life. A love of money is really us saying, I don't believe that Jesus is adequate in every capacity of my life. Because what a love of money does is it brings to the surface, money can do this for me, but Jesus can't or hasn't or won't. And yet God has given us all that we need in Jesus. Maybe not all that we want, but he's given us all that we need in him. And what money often does is it reveals what aspect of Jesus we don't really believe that he's gonna do or accomplish for us. In fact, here, let me just show you a few ways we see this uh, just, just briefly, how money reveals our hearts. Here's three ways we see this. First of all, when we hoard money, we don't trust God's protection or provision. So, so when saving moves to hoarding, right? S- saving's a good thing, it's biblical, but when it moves to hoarding, or when saving becomes, this is my safety net, this is my protection, even if something really bad happens, I still have blank. At that point, money, not God, is your source of protection and provision. And you're saying, Jesus is inadequate to protect or provide for me. Secondly, money reveals our hearts when we excessively spend money. God is not our delight now, I'm not saying that if you ever spend money, that's wrong. Particularly in our society, you've got to spend money to live, right? So that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person who, who violates various biblical principles with respect to finances. Um, and what you're looking for, I want that feeling. I want that enjoyment. I want that shopping high. I want what's new and pretty and that smell of new things. So, right, when I excessively spend money and not God becomes my source of delight and enjoyment. But I delight in the action. I delight in the result. I delight in the item and not the Savior. Thirdly, when we display money, God is not our identity. When you want people to see how much you have, when you want people to see all that you've accumulated, money and not God has become your source of identity. I am who I am because of all these assets, because of these possessions. Look at my things. And so, loved ones, let us guard ourselves from the love of money Because money is a terrible savior. These items here, these are all functional idols. These are functional saviors. And money is a terrible savior. So here's how we guard our hearts from loving money. Look at the back half of verse 5 and verse 6. It's that we're confidently content in Jesus. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, the confident contentment is tied to the fact that you have all that you could possibly want, or imagine, or need because you have Jesus. Verse five keep your life free from the love of money, be content with what you have. And you're like, Okay, well, what do you have? You have Him. That's what He's saying. He actually quotes two different places in the Old Testament. One from Joshua 1 and the other from Psalm 118. But, but He's saying, listen, if you have Jesus, what else do you need? And if you have Jesus, what else would you fear? And the answer to both of those is Nothing. And so when you're content in Jesus, it removes the temptation from loving money. When you're content in Jesus, it removes the temptation of defiling the marriage bed because Jesus is better than both of those. Contentment is what guards our holiness. Did you hear that? Contentment is what's going to guard your holiness. And the reality is this applies to every facet of our life. So listen, listen very carefully to me. Listen very, very carefully to what I'm about to say. If you are not content right now, you will not be content when you get whatever it is that you want. Because if you're not content right now, you're already saying Jesus hasn't done enough. You're you're dissatisfied with him. So whenever you get whatever that thing is, a house or a spouse or a car or a raise or a retirement, whatever, whenever you get that, there might be a temporary moment of satisfaction. But it's not going to be long before the discontentment sets back in. Because the only place you and I are going to find lasting contentment is in the person of Jesus. This is what Paul says in Philippians four. Here, let me let me read it real quick. Paul says this: Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul saying, "Listen, I can be content in any situation." Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? He means this: I know how to be brought low. Can you be content if you're brought low? Right? Paul saying, "Yeah, you can." And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's like, it doesn't matter context, circumstance, situation, how much or how little is in the account. That's not the issue. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's saying contentment is found in Jesus. Contentment is found in Jesus. And that's what the author's saying. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's a quote from Joshua 1, which by the way, at that point, God had provided for every single need for the Israelites for the last 40 years. There's serious teeth to that statement. And then he says, secondly, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Man can only do what God allows and what God permits. We're to be confidently content in Jesus. Let me ask you this. Where has Jesus failed? Where has Jesus come up short? Where is Jesus lacked? Nowhere. Nowhere. Now where has Jesus succeeded? Where is Jesus given excess? Where is Jesus provided abundantly? See, if you have Jesus, you have all that you need. You have all provision, all protection, all resources, all help. You have all that you need. And so we can trust God's provision and we can trust God's protection because we have Jesus. And I think a great application to all of this, to being confidently content in Jesus is the ability to come now to the Lord's table. So as we come to the table, let me maybe just frame it with a couple of things. First of all, in thinking about the table, a couple of things that we should be reminded of. We should be reminded that God has provided Jesus for us. We should be reminded of God's preservation and sustaining of us. We should be reminded that God has been hospitable to invite us to His table. And as we're reminded of these glorious truths, the reality is it also reveals and it also exposes some things that maybe we need to repent of. Maybe part of coming to the table is realizing that you have lacked contentment in Christ. But you're not fully satisfied in him. It's like, well, you're good for this and this, but I need this other thing to satisfy me over here. Maybe you've been idolizing money. Maybe you've been idolizing sex. Maybe anything, right? It's not just those items. It could be anything. And you've been doing so in opposition to worship of God. Maybe you're not looking to serve others. Maybe part of what God has exposed this morning is you're trying to not love your brothers and sisters. And yet in all of this, you and I are invited to the table. And so here's some things I think we do well to ask ourselves. Uh, In a moment, I'll release this, and and you can just reflect on these items. But ask God to enable you to be hospitable in the same manner, in the same way that Jesus has been hospitable to you. Ask God that you'd be able to love your family, not just your, well, maybe you need to ask him to help love your biological family too. I mean, that's definitely a thing around the holidays, right? Uh, But maybe you need to ask him for help to love your spiritual family. And then ask him to help you to pursue him above money, above sex, above all other things. And yet in all of this, we get to celebrate because we're coming to what is a shadow, right? This is just a shadow of what awaits us in eternity.